0: and function of Sangha in our practice. But I wanna begin by uh, taking a little detour uh, through Aristotle. Just to orient us, you'll recall that Socrates was the teacher of Plato, and Plato was the teacher of Aristotle. And Aristotle at one point was hired to be the tutor of the young Alexander the Great. And just about the only dates of antiquity I remember are that Socrates was put to death in 399 BCE, and Alexander died in 323 BCE. So everything we have uh, written comes to us uh, from Plato and Aristotle, you now comes in the fourth century between those two dates. It's interesting that Socrates, who we know was a genuine historical figure from a number of sources, wrote nothing himself. But Plato, his student, left behind a great volume of uh, dialogues that purported to be the teaching of. uh, Socrates. Yet it's almost impossible to untangle what Socrates himself might have actually taught from the way Plato put his own developing philosophy into the mouth of his uh, teacher when he started composing these dialogues. Uh, And You know, he was writing, he was present, you know, at the time of his teacher's death and began writing all these dialogues uh, right thereafter. And yet, we still, you know, scholars are still trying to sort out what was Socrates and what was Plato. And if we think of the parallel with the Buddha, Uh, we see this phenomenon of generations of teachers uh, constructing an elaborate system of teachings and putting it all into the mouth of the Buddha. And we really have no idea uh, what he said or what was constructed in the hundreds of years following that uh, went to make up the, the Pali canon. And just as Plato uh, vastly elaborated on the teachings of Socrates, Aristotle and Plato differed uh, greatly in the focus of their teaching. I think of Plato for all his virtues as one of the prime culprits in the uh, creation of uh, capital letters in in philosophy. He famously thought we couldn't understand individual instances of the good unless we understood what the good, capital G, was uh, in itself. And the things like... Good and beauty and love had their own uh, separate, intrinsic existence. He called them forms, and they didn't just exist as uh, descriptions of particular things, but had these abstractions themselves had an independent reality. Uh, In a way, the kind of reality we might ascribe to God, except he added an O and called it the good. Aristotle, his student, took exactly the opposite course and is known as sort of the great empiricist. He was a, a naturalist, a scientist. He wanted to know how all sorts of particular things worked very, very down-to-earth guy, and he wrote encyclopedically about all sorts of subjects from natural history to physics to philosophy to ethics. All these were one field to him. Now, if we look at Aristotle's ethics, he begins in an interesting way by saying everything that exists, exists with some end in mind, some goal, a telos. For instance, the the work of a carpenter is to learn how to put together a building or furniture. The carpentry, the building, has the end of having a chair to sit on or a house to live in. The same is true of all sorts of craftsmen, you know, and all the he goes through sort of all the occupations, and so sort of what what are they all aiming at? And he says that's true of our of our bodies. the, the goal of an eye is to enable seeing and ears to enable hearing so that when we look at all these things everything is aiming at some sort of goal but he says when you look take them all when we look at all these goals what do they themselves aim at? and he says they must. it must stop somewhere And his word for where it all is pointing is eudaimonia, uh, which often gets translated as happiness. The idea being that we want to have a house so we can be safe from the elements and be comfortable and live there with our families. But the goal of all that in the end is a certain kind of contentment or happiness. And he says that, that when we look at all these human activities, they all point towards this goal of happiness. But happiness it's, is where it stops. We're not happy in order to become something else. That's, that's the end point. But this is a, a book on ethics. And so he's got to say, well, what is the relationship between what we think of as virtues and being good and becoming happy? Now, as moderns, we almost automatically tend to think in utilitarian language or ways of thinking about things. Uh, In other words, we think about a means to an end. And so when we hear that he's trying to relate ethics or the virtues to a final goal of happiness we 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 are inclined to think that oh if we act virtual virtuously this will lead us to a happy life that it'll be an efficient productive way to get to happiness right and this treats happiness as something external to our virtues and to ourselves that we're trying to reach or trying to bring about. But Aristotle actually says something very different and uh, in a way quite radical. He names a particular set of virtues that we could look at now as being particular to his time and place. But they are things like justice and courage and moderation and prudence. And in recommending these things or in describing them, he's not uh, suggesting do this and it will have this uh, good outcome for you and he's not suggesting that well try courage you know see how it works for you uh, see if courage doesn't work out better than cowardice right in in terms of making you happy it's not that kind of argument where you suggest this is a a very efficient or reliable means to an end, but if it doesn't work, we'll try something else. It's not like that at all. For him, the virtues are what make us fully human. They are how we optimally function as human beings in the world. And Aristotle, in his own way, uh, was an originator of the idea that you can't be yourself by yourself. He didn't think of it intersubjectively like Hegel, but he said Man is inherently a social or political animal. And that basically you can't become fully human alone any more than you could become a great baseball player alone. In order to play baseball at all, you need a team, you need two teams. Uh, You can't develop as a baseball player, without the whole framework of of games and the tradition of practicing and playing. And for Aristotle, the virtues are like the exercise of all the different skills that go into becoming a baseball player instead of catching and throwing and fielding and hitting we have courage and moderation and justice and so on these you can you can do them all well or badly but Essentially, they're constitutive of being who you are. They're not a means to becoming something else. In other words, happiness is an external and virtues a means to get from here to there. Instead. Happiness is internal. It's a function, Uh, it it, it is the functioning of the virtues. And this is why instead of the word happiness, eudaimonia is often better translated as flourishing. the result of the practicing of the virtues is our flourishing we become more fully more perfectly what we're designed to do so this is why i was uh, able to write uh, about ending the pursuit of happiness Uh, Happiness, in Aristotelian terms, is not something outside us that we pursue, but something that is the byproduct of being fully who and what we are. Now, I think that there are actually many parallels in that to what we're familiar with with uh, in Dogen, when he talks about the identity of practice and enlightenment. In Dogen, we hear over and over again that Zazen is not a means to an end. It's not something we do in order to bring about this experience of enlightenment. Instead, that Zazen is the performance or enactment of enlightenment. Or we could say in Aristotle's terms, Zazen is a kind of virtue that when we exercise it, we are being most fully and optimally ourselves. Now the piece I want to add here goes back to Aristotle's talking uh, about us as social or political animals. For Aristotle, you needed a polis, a city, and a community in order to learn and practice the virtues. You needed to have around you not only examples of the virtues to model, but you needed an arena in which to develop and practice them, the same way you need two teams of people in order to practice and play baseball. You could not become a fully developed virtuous person all by yourself. And that, I think, is what we need to extend to what we think about Dogen's idea of the identity of practice and enlightenment. It's Not something we can do by ourselves. We can fall into the trap of thinking that Zazen is a solitary activity. And it's about our own personal enlightenment, our own personal flourishing or happiness. But we're also told that one of the basic truths of this world is interdependence and interconnection. And it would seem very strange to imagine we could Practice and understand interdependence alone, all right? Like baseball, like politics, it's something that manifests between us, among us, collectively. Now, I think that we inevitably fall into a utilitarian view of Sangha, where we think of it as a means to an end, a container for our practice, something that enables us to get together and do Zazen and listen to a teacher. But that, that view of Sangha gets us stuck in means-to-end thinking, and we sort of then worry about, is this the right way or best way to do it? But it has a more fundamental aspect to it. It's not that there aren't better or worse ways of organizing a Sangha. But we want to be able to to fundamentally think of sangha as a performative or expressive aspect of our practice. It's how we manifest and realize interconnection. the same way that Zazen is the performance of enlightenment, Sangha is the performance of interconnection. Now, personally, I I find that the most, (coughs) excuse me, Difficult part of practice. I don't think that I'm naturally a particularly gregarious or group-oriented person. Most of my work I've always wanted to do one-on-one, not, not in groups. I've certainly felt that I learn independently be dependent on the teachings of others, but a lot of the people I learned from are dead and are in books, people like Aristotle. And I have a much better relationship with him than I've had with a lot of living teachers. So when we get around to having to deal with actual human beings, I think it's uh, It's difficult. And I think that it's very easy to valorize Sangha in the abstract, but get very frustrated and irritated by all the actual individual people that you have to deal with to make something happen. But that is our practice as much as it's our practice to deal with all the frustrating and irritating things that come up within our own mind while we're sitting uh, on a cushion. Sangha in its own way is the antidote to the myth of the isolated mind the isolated mind that defines itself in separation and prioritizes virtues like autonomy and independence and invulnerability. Sangha is a constant reminder of the impossibility of those things. Now, because we are a lay Sangha in America, the form of Sangha is not given. We don't have the luxury of sort of, you know, uh, simply taking what Dogen said of how to uh, run a monastery and replicate it. There are people who Continue to try to do that, very literally. More power to them. It's trying to recreate and maintain an old form of life. Our task is different and uh, fundamentally more difficult. We have to figure out what kind of Community structure we're able to build and sustain such that it manifests our practice. That's our challenge. Let's see how we meet it.